because of this old outdated data set, we don't think any further about it, right? Like I said, people say strip the animal of that stimulus, put it in a dark room, you know, they're scared of light. And what you're doing is you're plucking, they're just plucking away at natural history, right? They're just removing it because either someone said so or we're misinterpreting a behavior, right? Because if you if you operate thinking the animals cannot thermoregulate and um, they're going to cook themselves, well, then yeah, why, why, why would you? Why would you give it a light? Why would you give it a heat source? Why, why would you do any of that, right? Because it doesn't know. It doesn't know what to do, you know, but that's just something I think from many years ago that was misinterpreted, right? It was an accident. Was Welcome back to the Animals at Home podcast. My name is Dylan Perrin, and thank you so much for tuning in today. Today, I am speaking with Ryan of Marshall Arachnids. Ryan and his partner Jess run Marshall Arachnids, and they are really focused on promoting natural history-based captive husbandry for tarantulas. This is very familiar to many of you as, I shouldn't say this specific topic is familiar, but the conversation itself will seem familiar because it's similar to what we talk about in the reptile world all the time. Ryan and Jess are focused on adding elements of husbandry back into tarantula care that we find in the wild, such as heating and lighting and photo periods and misting and rain cycles and humidity and temperature drops. And we discuss all of that in this episode. So if you're somebody who either keeps tarantulas right now or wants to get into tarantula keeping, this will be a very powerful episode for you. I mean, I keep two tarantulas behind me. Most of the things we talk about in this episode, I am not offering my tarantulas. So I'm very excited to kind of tinker with their care and start promoting higher level husbandry for my tarantulas. And hopefully we start seeing that across the board with other inverts as well. Before we jump into the episode, I just wanted to thank everybody for your really kind responses over the past two episodes. I had included that three or four minute clip of me discussing sort of where I am with the podcast about kind of contemplating whether I should get a sponsor or just focus more on Patreon. And I basically had three types of responses to it. The first was I had a bunch of people sign up for Patreon. So thank you so much. I had a bunch of people message me and say, go get sponsors. Don't feel bad about getting sponsors. Your show deserves sponsors. So thank you so much. And three, I had people actually reach out who are interested in sponsoring the podcast. So it was overwhel- uh, an overwhelming positive response to that. And if you have no clue what I'm talking about, later on, I'll make sure that clip gets played probably this episode and next episode. So that makes sure everybody's on the same page. And so in the middle of the episode, you'll, you'll understand what I'm speaking of. But until then, thank you guys so much for your support. It really does mean the world to me. Let's jump into the episode. Enjoy. Perfect. Well, Ryan, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for doing this. Thank you, sir. Thank you for having me. And it's nice to finally catch up. I know we kind of talked about doing this. Um, what was that? It was like a, I don't know. That was a few months ago. We talked about maybe doing a few months ago. Yeah, yeah. Definitely a few months ago for year. sure. Yeah. 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 I'm happy so to do it. it. It's been a while since I've uh, done an arachnid episode and I think you guys are up to some oh, pretty okay. interesting stuff. So I, I definitely want to, and as sure. you know, you know, there's, there's such a, uh, an overlap between reptile keepers and, and arachnid keepers. And so I, I would love Absolutely. to, I, I would love to know more about your just keeping background. Like I will, we'll get into your education background and, and, uh, and career background as well. Cause I think that kind of is, uh, plays an important role for you, but how long have you been sure. involved in arachnid keeping? Um, I think I got my first spider in 2014 or 2015. Um, <clears throat> I have lifelong arachnophobe. Uh, I'm still scared of them. If I'm being completely, completely honest with you. <laughs> they still kind of make me nervous. Uh, but I love them. I'm very fascinated with them. And I got my first one in 2014, I think. So, and uh, uh, someone just put one in my in my hand um, and said, don't move, you know, just relax. Uh, and that was life changing for me. You know, I don't hold my, my spiders at all. But that really changed 
it did a lot for me and in a number of ways, not just with the spiders, but like just a rational fear in general. It was a pivotal moment for me. So I just kind of stuck. And then I started researching them and uh, blue ones caught my eye and uh, fast forward. And here we are now, but started in 2014 with my first view. Yeah, it's interesting. I can almost relate to that completely. Besides somebody actually putting a, a tarantula in my hand, I've never, I've never held one, but I do have two. I don't know if you know, I have two kind of you know small ones, and uh, I'm okay. definitely still like afraid of them in a way. You know, I done, have done one or two rehousings, and they they were okay, but I still have a lot of respect for them when I'm feeding them, even though they're they're pretty docile. But it's still, I still get yeah. like a little bit on edge working with them. Yep. Which is probably a good thing. I tell people, keep if you're on your toes, it's not a bad thing. If you're, you're aware, if situational awareness goes up anytime you interact with them, it's a good thing, right? Yeah. So, and that's what's yeah. weird about the arachnid it keeping hobby is there's actually a lot of people that I think are kind of in that boat of they're keeping them, but they're actually still like intimidated and a little bit timid working with them, which is sort of different than you'd see on the reptile side. You know, maybe some people keep snakes or kind of uncomfortable with them but typically that's short-lived sure. there's something about spiders that it takes a little bit of time i think to kind of get over that yeah i would agree 100 percent. i talk to a lot of people at shows too and um some people kind of look at me when i say because uh, i try to relate to people you know i tell them yeah i'm afraid of them too it's okay you know but i try i kind of i say i treat them more like fish and then mm-hmm. there's something that switches in their brain they're like oh okay well then now it makes a little more sense you know it's not something that i interact with but um definitely talking to folks there's a number of them that that's why a lot of people keep jumping spiders too it's like i'm afraid of them but the jumping spiders have this you know the kind of bridge i got the face and the personality and it works for me uh then they kind of eventually start keeping tarantulas but you're right it's a very common occurrence so i don't feel like i'm too far removed from the populace of keeping spiders you know kind of a thing so yeah yeah, I think the, the the fish analogy is good. That was what really kind of pushed me into it. Is like you don't actually have to interact. There's n- at no point do you have to touch them or or handle them at all. You know, there's there's ways to keep them in a, where you don't have to do that. And, and and maybe we'll talk about that in a little bit. But as far as your sure. like education and career background, can you give us a, a little bit of that as well? Oh yeah, I'm kind of all over the place. Um, so let me start. I like to start off by saying I am not a zoologist. I am not a scientist. Um, I worked with many of those, uh, all at the top of their field, to be honest with you, I've, I've had, I've been very privileged, but I myself do not have these pieces of paper, um, that make me so, right. I just got lucky. Um, and we can talk about that. So, um, when I was going to school, I started working for a company called Josh's frogs. Um, they're a Titan in the industry here in the United States. Um, their facility was like right around the block at the time when they were still a little smaller from my school. And he said, Hey, I need someone to feed frogs. Now, before that, I was a hobbyist myself, so it just kind of made sense, right? I, I didn't really keep amphibians, but I had kept snakes and even reticulated pythons, <laughs> which we can talk about that too, but um, at the time, so it wasn't foreign to me. He just said, I need someone to feed frogs. It was a win-win, right? And it just kind of spiraled from there. I, I graduated from uh, from school with my degree in the medical field, um, but then after a few years of working in the pet industry, I wanted to pursue a career in AZA or uh, zoos and aquariums, um, but I didn't know what to do because so much time had already passed. I was getting older. Like I didn't want to go back to school. Like most zoologists and zookeepers, I'll have their bachelor's and master's and then pursue other things. Right. Um, but I, I was hell bent and I wanted to do that. So I moved to Omaha, Nebraska. Um, and I was lucky enough to land an internship there, um, in their reptiles and amphibians department. Um, I did that for, I interned for a long time to the point where the curator was like, Hey man, you should probably go get a job. Like <laughs> we know who you are you're fine. And 
I didn't want to. Like it wasn't about money. It wasn't about like any of that. I just I just loved doing it, and I didn't want to miss anything. You know, I wanted to soak up all of this information. Um, and if anyone's ever been to uh, that zoo, it's it's amazing. It's a beautiful zoo. Um, they pour a lot of money into their resources, and um, the exhibits are fantastic. The staff is top notch. So I, I just wanted to be a part of that. You know, it was like I didn't think I'd ever have the chance. So I just never wanted to leave. Um, Eventually, I got hired in as a summer keeper working with the reptiles and amphibians. Um, and then once my time was up there, I got a full-time job working at the Fort Worth Zoo, uh, the Museum of Living Art, working with reptiles and amphibians. That was my first full-time job. Um, I was there for about six months, um, but then I just missed Nebraska. Um, and then it just so happened to, not and not necessarily living in the state, just what the state had to offer there. You know, there's really not much there. There's really good food and then there's a zoo, and that's pretty much it. Um, but I wanted to go back because an, a position in their amphibian conservation department opened up, which was not open to the public. That was a very specific kind of biosecure role where you're working with various species that were property of respective governments. Um, and th that was, that was it for me. I was like, okay, I've done enough. I wanted to get in, uh, to that. And I didn't, I kind of glossed over the whole fact that I did a lot of conservation work in Honduras during that time working for Omaha. I was part of a, a conservation project there. Um, so that they, they just kind of made sense. I was like, this is what I want to do. I love this. And I got in, um, I was there for a couple of years and then the curator of, oh no, no. At the time she was their vet. So she, I met her working at Omaha and she was the amphibian PhD, um, I guess sex doctor, right? She would come in and help us read the amphibians and we, we, we would take samples. And all that stuff. And she was she got hired at Detroit. Now I'm originally from Michigan. She got hired at, as the curator at Detroit Zoo. And um, she asked if I wanted to come home. And I missed home and I wanted to come home. So I came home. Uh, and all this time I'm learning and doing arachnids basically by myself. Like I'm just keeping them. And arachnids are just kind of a hobby for me. Like I leave the reptiles and amphibians and I come home and I have my spiders, which I was only keeping one species at a time. Uh, so I worked with, at Detroit for a little while and then um, COVID happened and politics ensued and things just got real weird. And finally, I just made the decision like the spiders are kind of working for me. I'm making a lot of them. I'm, I'm making an investment with them. I want to do more with them um, by myself and just see how it goes. I'm not a business person, but my whole life has been one big gamble. So I was like, let's see what happens. So um, I left and I poured every cent I had into starting martial arachnids. And uh, here we are. Wow. <laughs> so, so is that what you yep. do full time now? Marshall Arachnids is is your full time gig. That is correct. Yeah, Jessica and I both do it. Uh, we actually built a facility here in Tennessee uh, specifically for the spiders. Uh, how many square feet is this? Jess, Jess is over my shoulder. Eighteen hundred square feet uh, wow. for the animals. We live on the top the top half. It's not finished yet, of course, but um, we built built it for the business. So we're here. That's incredible. So, so was was Jess originally from Tennessee, or did you guys just have an eye on Tennessee and just wanted to to be somewhere different? Great question. So, I met Jessica working at Detroit Zoo. She was a keeper there at the uh, Belle Isle Nature Center, which was just kind of part of the amphibian department. Zoos do weird things like that, and whatever. But that's where I met Jessica, um, and I gave her her first spider, which was the same one I started out with, the Postlotherium metallica, the blue ones. She fell in love with them. Uh, we hit it off, of course. Um, and then she had family down here in Tennessee and up in Michigan. I mean, to you, Michigan's like Florida, but for me, it's freezing. <laughs> and I found it very difficult to, 
work outside and facilitate working with the spiders in that cold climate. So we want, it's still cold in Tennessee, but not that cold. Like, yeah. you know, so it just made sense to move out here. We wanted to be in the country um, and she's got family close by. So that's why we're here. That's amazing. Yeah, that's that's really incredible that you're able to to do that both full time and uh, and actually work with something you're passionate about. Not to mention your start both your starter species was a bit <laughs> that's a bit sketchy starting with the old world species, but obviously it worked out in the yeah. end. Yeah. Yeah, yep, yep. And uh, you know, that was what I like I said, that's what I started out with and I breeding that species is kind of what really like catapulted me into this whole world of um arachnoculture if you will. Um and it just works. I don't know. It worked out pretty good. So I'm actually curious while we're talking about it, though, I would like to know more about you um, because you talk as though you've been educated in all of this stuff. And like you talk as if you, you've worked at a zoo before. So I'm curious to know about you, Dylan. Uh, no, I've not worked at a zoo. I have um, a degree in anthropology. My my main okay. focus while I was in university was swimming. I was a competitive swimmer, so I did that. And that's still my my actual job is uh, I coach at the university. So that's oh, where cool. most of okay. my expertise is is in athletics okay. and in swimming. And then the, I've just been keeping reptiles for a long time. We st- I started the podcast back in 2019-ish. So I think any of the information that it seems like I know has literally just come from the, talking to people on the podcast and just learning from guests. I love that. I love that because I think sometimes it gets off-putting when I, uh, I talk about my background, Jessica, Jessica's background. You don't have to be those things to just kind of understand and explore these concepts and apply them, right? Um, totally. And so I love that. Yeah, yeah, I think that's great. Yeah, and there's so many opportunities for people. If, like you said, even you know, you don't have to have the degree, you don't have to have the paper behind or the you know letters behind your name. There's so much people can right. do in this field that uh, you know, there, there, there's an endless list. You don't have to do the you know the the classic zookeeper and, and so on. Agreed. Yeah. And I think uh, any good zookeeper will tell you this, but the, the what matters most as far as keeping animals and working with animals is what cannot be taught, which is just an intuition, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, you can you can certainly teach, but there's uh, what makes a good zookeeper is definitely intuition. And the, um, some someone uh, I was friends with told me, you don't have to be the strongest, smartest, or fastest. You just have to be the most willing. Um, and that always stuck with me. Um, Shout out to Brandon. Brandon is the one who told me that. And he told me that when I was first starting out and I thought there was no way I was going to get a job or career in zookeeping or anything like that or be successful, period. And uh, that was very true, right? You just have to be the most willing, put in the work, right? Yeah. Get it figured out. Yeah. So. Consistency is uh, really the name of the game for the most part. And, and I'm yeah. curious, you know, you have this, this background of working with amphibians and, and frogs and especially, you know, doing some, which I think was some conservation work, like you were saying, but like some, maybe some rewilding work as well. How how did that in, because what's interesting about how you care for spiders and how you ingest run your business is it sort of takes another angle to, to keeping spiders in the same way that this podcast promotes, you know, pushing our care forward, promoting higher level husbandry, increasing the the welfare of the animals that we keep. And so you have this really interesting philosophical thread that runs through the way you keep, which is very similar to what we do here. And I'm curious, did that come from working with frogs or or how did, did you always think about keeping tarantulas that way? Yeah. Um, great question. So yes, obviously my background has had a huge effect in how I keep my animals at home. Right. Um, my job, um, when I got to Omaha or just in general, but like Omaha is what really sent that forward because my job was to put endangered amphibians back in the wild. Right. And so you could quantify how good I was at my job 
I guess. At least this is how I did it and how well I was able to reproduce and maintain those captive populations, all in efforts to re-release them, right? So, so help struggling populations in the wild. And uh, you could say that I was nat- understanding natural history and how animals behave in the wild um, and how to somehow or another translate that into captive husbandry, like it was directly correlated to how well I was at my job. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, and a big push in AZA, at least in the last few years, was is welfare, captive welfare, welfare. It's the buzzword. Right. So much so that it dri- it drives me insane to this day hearing that word. Uh, but it's huge because it's 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 the way in which we're able to quantify the success in keeping animals. Right. At least to some. Uh, but as far as AZA standards are concerned, um, to me, natural history and understanding welfare, it all kind of flows together. It's all kind of one thing, right? So, you know, and I learned this in Honduras. My job was we were working with three species of amphibian that were going extinct because of chytrid fungus, right? And which was spreading, still spreading all over the globe. Um, but those animals, animals from highland populations are very affected. It's cooler temperatures, right? Mm-hmm. So those animals needed help. Right. And it was great for the zoo. The zoo could check their PR box and donate to conservation. So I, it all worked out really well. But um, what I learned, what my job was to go in there, study the frogs, and then, okay, how can we take them into captivity, clear them of chytrid, breed them, and then re release? Right. So my job was like, I got to understand how they work. Right. Now I'll be the first to say what you see out there versus what you see in here don't always correlate. Right. And you have mm-hmm. to make adjustments and whatnot. But, uh, I spent uh, one night, I spent one whole night from sundown to sunup watching these frogs, these three species of frogs. And I just saw things that like, I never, ever would have guessed they've done, they did, right? Like I watched a tree frog go from like underwater where like under boulders, under underwater, fast moving water and climb 50 feet up a tree and then overhang and perch, right? And I never would have saw that behavior. Now, why he did that, I don't know. But they all did. They they were all starting to do that. So, like, observing these things in the wild, obviously, is going to play a major role in, like, how, if when I acquire an animal, I want to know everything, right? What, what does it do? Because animals are the product of their wild environments, right? That they're, they're millions of years of evolutionary prowess to get to what you see, right? So, I wanted to understand that. And so, obviously, that's what's played a big role in, like, what we're always advocating, which is natural history. Not necessarily keeping your animals in natural bioactive enclosures. I don't think that's what's most important, but trying to understand the behaviors that you're seeing, I think, are should be at the forefront of everything you do if you're going to make the decision to keep animals, right? Because the better you understand that, the better you understand how to potentially care for them in captivity. So, yeah, yeah. Hopefully that answers your question. Oh, no, yeah. totally. And it, it reminds me of. I did an episode a few years ago about hermit crabs and it was, and, and hermit crabs kind of fall into the same category as tarantulas in a lot of ways is that they sort of get left behind as far as the natural history goes. They become just a, yeah. a pet that people can buy and there's no thought about how to care for them. So the, the episode that I did, it was interesting because you know, she talked about how to actually set up their environments properly and that they'll live, you know, 30 or 40 years, something insane, where in the pet industry, typically they live like a year because you, you buy them yeah. and they're in this horrible conditions and they just die. So they become like a disposable type pet and maybe tarantulas aren't quite that bad but i think just even taking the approach of natural history is something that not a lot of people do or it's relatively new i would agree yeah and uh a common thing that i've seen is we tend to bulk 
like kind of lump tarantulas into just like a tarantula is a tarantula, right? There's no thought as to like where they come from and what species we're working with and where, you know, none of that. I mean, we're getting better, of course. But when I first started, that was kind of like, when he, when he was just talking about tarantulas, he just talked about tarantulas, right? When, and we're not, we're not thinking about the individual species, which, you know, there's species in the same genre, genre that are very, very different, right? So when you think about that, you know, there's a lot to consider, right? Which is why, historically speaking, martial arachnids has never really worked with a large variety of species because I know I can't provide the, I can't replicate what I think they need, uh, right? For like a hundred different species, right? Yeah. We have more than, more than I would like. I think right now we're at like 50, 80, 80, 80. <laughs> uh, but 80 that's species. why we built such a big facility, right? Because we can now, we can, we can climate control these things and give them these cycles and, I know it's a lot. I know most people are not, it's not even a thought when it comes to tarantulas, but I can't help it because I've seen the success that it brings. Right. And I see their behaviors. I see, I think, I think I've, I'd be so bold to say, I see a lot of behaviors that I think I would say 90% of keepers don't see out of their spiders, right? Mm-hmm. Because we are experimenting with these ch- changes and airflow, humidity levels and rainfall and basking spots. And um, it's amazing. Like totally they're amazing animals. They're so cool, you know? Yeah, yeah. So yeah, yeah that's, uh, yeah. You know, th- that's what I always say. The, the, the reward is getting to see the natural behaviors of the animal. So you increase their care, you do this, whatever, do thing X, and then you get this production right. of Y behavior. And then suddenly it's even more fascinating. It becomes a positive feedback loop because the better you get at, you, you know, at replicating their natural history, the more fascinating these interesting behaviors you get to see are. So, that, so that's, uh, it, it's, it's very reminiscent to, to what we're experiencing on the reptile side. Do you remember where you, where you first approached kind of pushing tarantula care forward? Like did, did, when you first got your first P Metallica, were you just kind of keeping yeah. it the conventional way or did you immediately start to tinker? Yeah, good question. No, not at all. So like right out the gate, I set it up like you would an arboreal lizard, right? Um, and I'm not talking about like, you know, the branches and whatnot. I'm talking about like the thermal gradients and like getting some air movement in the enclosure because I, when I was researching them, I was researching where they've been found, at least documented. And it's hot. It is like really hot. And what I think a trap a lot of us get in is when you first Google how to care for a tarantula, here comes that lumping in together. You know, it's like, there might be some subtle differences here and there, but like, it was kind of, if you're comfortable, they're comfortable. And I'm like, there is no way that makes any sense when I know where these things come from, right? There's no way. So I just started tinkering with the, like, how hot, how hot do I get it? And like, how tall of an enclosure can, do I need to get them that gradient, right? Um, so right out the gate, I started doing that and kept it, kept it to myself. Cause I, you know, again, I was a career zookeeper and like, I, I wasn't, and I wasn't selling animals to anyone, right. I wasn't a breeder. It was just like, I, I just want to do this for me. So for quite a few years, I just kept this, all this information to myself. Um, and it wasn't until, you know, I became a breeder and it made it my job to sell it to people. Well, now I'm keeping something that's different than everyone else. So now I have to kind of and I'm not good at explaining myself and I'm not good at being in front of a camera, but I have to figure something out because the way I'm doing this is not aligning with the way the majority of the hobby is doing this. So like I have to do something, right? So that's kind of how it all started. But from the, from the jump, it was never, I never followed a book, a care guide, uh, anybody. It was just like, what am I seeing? And uh, what am I finding on these websites that are talking about the climate and where their animals are from? Right? Yeah, yeah. So yeah. let's talk about some of those, you know, I guess we can call them tarantula care myths or the, the things that people are doing now that are 
you know, not killing their tarantulas outright, but potentially, you know, right. being a, a space for them to improve. So I, I think there's, there, there's, I don't know if you want to, we can just kind of list through some of them. And I'd be curious to know what they are and then why people think, you know, why people are participating in the incorrect care. What, what's driving their thinking okay. in, in those areas? Sure. Yeah. Um, so right out the gate, you know, the internet is inundated with a lot of information that, that has been, is old, right? I would say several years old, right? We can start with that book. Right, the, the Keeper's Guide by Stan. Um, we can just start with that, right? <clears throat> and a lot of the information, I mean, we, we are getting better. So there's that. I know for a fact that we're getting better. We're starting to understand these concepts and apply them. And I talk to a lot of people at shows. So I know we're getting better. But let's just start with that. When you Google how to care for your tarantula, you see a list of names, you see a list of a, a data set, and they're all kind of saying the same exact thing, right? So it isn't until you start digging um, that you find these subtle differences, right? What some people do. And then when they find these differences, they post about it and then they get a myriad of different responses and they're like, I'm just confused, right? Yeah. <laughs> you know? So um, there's that. I would say that's the biggest problem, right? And I think instead of, I think using the internet as a resource is a fantastic tool. That's what it's there for. But I think we're also not critically thinking about where the animals come from. And we're also not observing what is in front of our eyes. Right, because I see a lot of pictures of tarantulas trying to thermoregulate, and the first thing we, uh, the, the first comment is, "You're going to kill your animal. It's going to cook itself. You need to remove that light or whatever the heat source is." Right. So that's problem number one, or two, or three, or four. Probably problem problem number ten. Right. It's like we're not observing what's happening, and then we're just we're sticking to this old, outdated, outdated set of data, and that's gospel. Right. Yeah. Or that's just the way to do it. Right. A lot of folks get into the spiders because they are easy to keep. They want their tarantula keeping experience to be simple. They want to put it in their shoebox or their simple enclosure with their coconut fiber. And I'm comfortable. It's comfortable. We're good. Life's going to go on. Right. There is a lot of that happening, too. Um, so I think that's that's probably the, the, the first set of problems. Right. Um, is, is just old data, outdated, outdated stuff. Um, there are still a lot of keepers that connected with that believe that the animals are incapable of thermal regulation, which when you Google what a tarantula is, a tarantula is called a polycolotherm. Now a polycolotherm by definition modifies its behavior and efforts to thermal regulate. So the very core of what a tarantula is, is a thermal regulatory little, little beast. Right, it, it modifies its behavior, it makes its burrow, or it does everything in accordance to basically where the sun is and what's happening during the season. Right, that is by definition what it is, and we see that. You don't have to be a scientist; you just watch your animal when it's cold; it wants to warm up. Right, and I don't think we, um, because of this old, outdated data set, we don't think any further about it. Right, like I said, people say strip the animal of that stimulus put it in a dark room, you know, they're scared of light. And what you're doing is you're plucking, they're just plucking away at natural history, right? They're just removing it because either someone said so or we're misinterpreting a behavior, right? Because if you if you operate thinking the animals cannot thermoregulate and um, they're going to cook themselves, well, then yeah, why, why, why would you? Why would you give it a light? Why would you give it a heat source? Why, why would you do any of that, right? Because it doesn't know. It doesn't know what to do. You know, whether that's just something I think from many years ago that was misinterpreted, right? It was an accident. It was a keeping accident and it just stuck. They can't, they're incapable, right? So 
Does that answer your question? Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. Okay. I, the, the, it is interesting, and that's a, a good point as well, is that a lot of people do get into tarantula keeping. Cause, and even if you do bring your, let's say you bring your tarantula care up to like the highest level as we know today, it's still a relatively simple animal to care for because you're not having to take it for walks. You know, you're not having to interact with it every day. Feeding is not something that has to happen regularly. So even if you stretch beyond the the basic box, it's still pretty simple. And and for those who are, because there'd be a lot of people who might listen to this and go, wow, I've been doing things wrong the the whole time. It's not necessarily, it's the same thing we see on the reptile side. It doesn't mean you're a bad keeper. It just means you haven't been exposed to some of the right information. And and hopefully we can, you know, add to that over the next years. And the the great thing about tarantulas and reptiles is that they are fairly patient with us and they are rugged and they can kind of handle being, you know, cared for improperly for some time until you're able to level it up. Correct. I'm glad you. I'm glad you mentioned that because I was going to totally skip by that. Um, the uh, survivability, the adaptability of the animals, like tarantulas in particular, I think is also where we get a lot of this. Do less. Less is more. Don't do anything because they do survive, right? And they're they're very adaptable. There's and um, which I can get into how that's also false, but I'll do that in a second. Like somebody will say, I've kept this animal for 10 years. And before that, I kept another one for 30 years and it just didn't do anything and it was fine. Right. So right out the gate, you're ignoring, we're not talking about, are we doing that thing again? We're not talking about individual species, right? We're also ignoring the keeper's habitat, right? Or like your environment in your room, which is obviously going to vary. My environment is going to be very different from your environment. And that is ultimately going to affect how we keep the spider, right? So we're not taking that into consideration. That's another fault, right? Everyone's different, right? So, but because they are so adaptable and they, they do survive, it's like, well, why, why would I complicate this? Like, they look at me like, Ryan, you're just making this hard. You're just overcomplicating it. You don't have to do any of those things, right? But I will come into that. And Becky O'Neill, a PhD candidate who I talked to recently on a podcast, said it really well. She's wonderful. And in fact, if I could just put her in front of me and just have her talk, I would do that because she's wonderful. She puts things, strings and things together very nicely in a more digestible way. Um, But she was like, we know that's false because when you give them the correct and the appropriate stimulus, they absolutely, without hesitation, capitalize on it. They use it. Right. And, And that correlates again with what we were talking about, the natural history. So they get it in the wild. You give it to them in captivity. You're, you're, you're replicating these behaviors. Um, and, and that is what good welfare is in, in layman's terms, right? It's, is, is we're, we're re- recreating these natural behaviors. So, and also <clears throat> backing up a little bit because they are cold blooded and they, they need to thermoregulate like heat. What I try to explain to people at shows anyway, is like heat is, is a unit of energy and tarantulas when they're growing, especially when they're small, like they need that heat among other things like uh food and and water um to pull themselves out of their exoskeleton right and um that's you gotta you you can imagine on that scale how much energy that requires right when when a cold-blooded animal is cold and you don't give them that opportunity to warm their bodies um you could see how you well now they're gonna get they could get stuck in a molt not always but they could right right because they didn't have the tools necessary to facilitate that metabolic process right Mm -hmm. so very simple. I mean, it's adding a lot of complicated words to it, but really like cold, warm, yeah. let it be warm, let it warm itself if it wants to. So giving the animal the choice to be warm, right? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yes. And there yeah. are a few other areas. We'll talk about how, you know, keepers can implement some of these things and get, you know, give them tools about how to 
do proper heating and lighting yeah. and whatnot. And but but as far as some other ones that I see, you know, misting uh, is is an interesting one because some people will say never mist uh, a tarantula. Some people say you can a little bit, but it, it's another one of those areas yeah. where it seems like there's some folklore attached to just humidity and moisture in general. Like what, yeah. what's what's let's, the kind of so consensus me... right now with with what people think? Okay, well I'm gonna I'm gonna ignore what people think and I'm just gonna talk about what I, what I do. And sure, then sure. I'll kind of go into that. So, um, Jess and I do not keep track of, we don't have a little hygrometer in every tank and we do not keep track of humidity. Right. Um, I kind of agree with where a lot of people sit with like humidity is not important. Don't keep track. I don't ever say don't keep track because you should never tell a, a keeper to not keep track of any parameter, right. Whether that's rainfall, uh, humidity, temperature, like you should never tell someone, don't worry about it. Cause that's, that's just bad husbandry, though. Um, but we don't measure any particular humidity, but we do, we mist every single day, every day. And I usually, under normal circumstances, advise people to lightly do so because the animals, uh, fresh water, uh, fresh water droplets in the wild is usually a sensory cue. It's a trigger. I, I give my animals a water dish. But if they have the opportunity, they will drink fresh water every single day. So that fresh water coming into that fresh environment is a trigger for them to drink, right? So you're we're capitalizing on something there. And I think, you know, it rains a lot where a lot of these animals are from. So it just makes sense that fresh water is good water. Take advantage of it despite having a water dish, right? So that's why we missed every single day. We're not keeping track of humidity. We're also not trying to saturate the environment because humidity and airflow and temperature really are all kind of this cohesive parameter together, right? I know we like to categorize and keep them separate, but in reality, they're all one thing right? they all affect the other. So um, we miss every day. Now, a lot of people, I think the, I'm going to get this off my chest too. A lot of people say just overflow the water dish and that's it. Overflowing the water dish and misting are not equivocal in any way, right? They might, both boost ambient humidity temporarily, I suppose, and I'll give it that, but that's not really the same thing. You're not really providing what you're supposed to be providing the animal by doing that, right? So the 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 substrate being moist, I think for some species is important and not so much others. Um, terrestrial species in particular, I like to keep it somewhat damp. Um, but I think the general consensus for misting is we usually don't don't do it. Um, and I think that's feeding into accidents that people are not understanding what happened because when you miss frequently and you keep things saturated, well, now we're going into that airflow thing where like the air, air or the air can be stagnant and these animals do not do well with stagnant conditions. So it's like, we're trying to combat something by completely oversimplifying another factor. Right. And that's exactly what's happening. Um, because someone will look at me and be like, you missed every day. How are your animals not dead? It's like, well, mm. things are drying out. They're there moving. There's warm, the warmer temperatures. So like, it's not stagnant air. It's not dead air, right? So book lungs work by diffusion, which is how the animals breathe, right? If you fill the air with stagnant, stuffy moisture and, and not free, free, free moving air exchange, well, yeah, that's what kills animals, right? So going off on another tangent but i think generally speaking it's like don't miss because we're trying to fix something by eliminating a, a factor right so yeah 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 that's I it. every day. it's like if there was a cholera outbreak you just say instead of fixing the bacteria in the water you just don't drink water <laughs> that's it's exactly like, right that, that will cure exactly you from right. cholera <laughs> 
Yes, um, exactly. So, I think well, that's what's happening. We'll, we'll, we'll get into, you know, I, I'd love to know more about the missing, like the, the practicality side of that, but there's a few more other myths sure. that I think are, are kind of worth kind of laying out. Another one, I think maybe this is what you may have talked to with Becky about is just the intelligence of the animals themselves or, or lack thereof. That's, you know, there's quite commonly they're seen as total uh, automatons. <laughs> like, you know, they, they don't, they just, all they can do is eat and poop basically and, and molt. Yeah, but I think there's, th- there's more going on there than, you know, they do have the ability to learn. So as far as your experience with them and their intelligence, what's, what's your perspective there? Yeah. Um, so that's not my area of expertise. That's definitely more um, Becky's. I can only tell you what I observe, which mm-hmm. I observe a lot. Um, yeah, there's a lot going on there. So the animals do actually like their repetitive nature. They are very routine in nature. They're very, if it's not broke, don't fix it. Um, but what I've noticed is what Becky was saying in terms of like stimulus. Like they understand that a set of stimuli and vibrations like result in a specific outcome, which for a tarantula that is rather defensive and elusive in nature is like, I will not be affected negatively by this or this, this set of stimuli results in feeding, right? I get fed. Um, I believe her 100%. I don't even know if that's her opinion at this point. I think that's science at this point facts that, that they're capable of at least that. And that is something that I've observed um, as well. So when you look at that um, and you think, well, wow, like we didn't know that before, right? So invertebrate science is coming a long way in the last few years. So like, it's very exciting to see scientists and academics kind of coming out and being like, there's a lot more to these little things than what we thought, you know? And and that's just one aspect. They obviously have the ability to learn uh, and remember and retain information um, and they can learn relatively quickly. Um, I have not done any of that science myself. I just know what I see with my animals and I'm, behind that 100 percent, yeah they definitely and that goes also with thermal regulation and like finding heat sources and whatnot like i've played around with that quite a bit moving their little basking bulbs around to see if they'll chase it and they really seem to want to just stay next to their hollow or their hide they don't want to venture out too far from that and that also correlates with what becky said she was doing something in the field with a reptile taking some data collection but uh, she just to keep her helper busy said, go try to find tarantula burrows. And they found that they're clustered where in areas that get the most direct sun exposure. Right. Mm-hmm. So that's speaking to an intelligence as well. Right. Whether they're making that choice or it's just instinctual, they can't help it either way. It's part of their biology. Right. And the way they process uh, uh, sensory information. Right. They definitely prefer to have these resources in one spot close to where they feel safe Mm -hmm. instead of chasing it, which that's another myth is that they will just chase the heat source no matter what and cook themselves. That's that's actually very far from uh, true. I mean, obviously, they'll chase it if the ambient temperatures in the room are too cold and they desperately need it for some metabolic function. Sure. But when given the opportunity, they prefer it to be close to where they feel safe. Hey there, I hope you're really enjoying the episode of the podcast so far. I wanted to take a short break to bring you behind the scenes of the podcast. I want to make this as concise as possible. The podcast has been on for almost six years. It's been an absolutely incredible experience for me. I've met many of you, the listeners in person and online, and of course the guests that have brought incredible information to the show. It's been amazing. But I'm now at the point where I really do need this venture to 
be more economical. To be frank, I need it to make more money. It's just, it really does take up a ton of my time. This is not my full-time job. For those of you that think this is my full-time job, I have a full-time job that requires way more than 40 hours a week, and I squeeze the podcast in in amongst family time and other things as as much as I can. And I love doing it, but it it's now getting to the point where I'm thinking, how long can I continue sacrificing time to this if, if, if it's not being economical? And I would love to continue to produce the podcast for absolutely no money, but I think you all understand that that is not really fair to me or my family. So I'm exploring the idea of bringing formal sponsorship onto the podcast, but I'm very reluctant to do so. Of course, I have the affiliate relationship with Custom Reptile Habitats, and I always will. Paul and I get along great. We have the same ethics, the same moral foundation when it comes to herpeticulture. I use his equipment, the the Custom Reptile Habitat, maximum, Maximum Reptile enclosures, and I love them, and I'm happy to promote them on an affiliate basis. But when I talk about formal sponsors. I'm talking about somebody paying to have me mention their brand at some point in the episode. And I think you can understand why that makes me a little bit uneasy because it it, it reduces the freedom of the podcast. Maybe I won't have as much freedom to talk about certain things or now I'm going to have to kind of be careful about what I say about certain products under certain brands. We all know reptile brands, there's some amazing brands out there, but quite a few of them have some kind of funky products in there that we wouldn't necessarily promote. Would having a formal sponsorship make me not be able to criticize those things? I don't exactly know. So long story short, what I'm asking you as the listener, if you are enjoying the podcast, if you consume it on a regular basis, and you have a disposable 3 or $5 a month that you can sign up for the Patreon, if you go to patreon.com slash animals at home, that would really help. I would really love to continue producing the show funded by the listeners rather than being funded by a brand. I just feel like that's going to, it could ruin the show in some ways because the show that you've come to enjoy and the show that I've come to enjoy producing is a completely free and allows me to do whatever I want. As soon as I tie it to a brand in a formal way, like a sponsorship, I'm very worried that it will no longer be the same show. I hope you understand that. So again, it's not about me getting rich off the podcast, but it is about me making sure that the time that I'm using to spend on the podcast is it makes sense. And it, of course, it takes time from my fa- away from my family and other things. And uh, as much as I love doing the podcast, I mean, think about doing something 10 to 15 hours a week for free for six years. I mean, I make a little bit of money right now, but really not enough for it to make sense at this point as you know, as I evolve in my life. So if you do have an extra couple of bucks and you want to support the podcast that way, that would really go a long way to help secure the podcast's future. If you're enjoying it and you don't want it to stop, you don't want it to stop in the way that it has been, this the sort of free dialogue without being afraid to talk about products or brands, then Signing up for the Patreon is the best way to preserve the Animals at Home podcast as it is today. I think that's all I'm going to say about that. So thank you so much for listening to this. Let's jump back into the episode. Definitely. Yeah, yeah. It's almost like there's a hierarchy of needs that they, you know, security obviously comes first, and then it, it, right. it's like it's like humans eating a really proper, like nutritious diet. If if you're able to do it, then it's going to be better for you. If you have the opportunity to eat as nutritious as you can, you can, you can do it, but you can also survive off chicken nuggets if you absolutely needed to as well. So, you know, there, exactly. there's that hierarchy yeah. of, of things that you can add to your, to your diet. Um, yeah. it, and it's, I, I think when you just highlight something, just understand that they, there is kind of a learning response and they understand stimulus and things like that. It's not to go out and say, you're going to, put a leash on your tarantula and take them for a walk, which is quite often the, the response that we'll sometimes get from from one sector of the reptile world. It's like, oh, you're going to take your your pet snake, uh, you know, pet them or yeah. whatever. It, it's more a motivation to, to increase the, the 
the care level that they have in their captive environment and understanding that they are they do have this ability to to cognitively cognitively process things and to give them more opportunity in their captive environment is only going to be beneficial Yes, I agree. A hundred percent. The more that we can give them, I said this in an interview one time, believe it or not, for a zookeeping position, but the more we can give them in their box that we put them in uh, to, again, this all comes back to natural history and replicating these natural behaviors, the better, right? They're, they're, they're capable of understanding and utilizing what they've evolved to do, right? Mm-hmm. And it doesn't, that doesn't necessarily mean live plants and all sorts of other things you know, that 10 people kind of lump into being complicated. It doesn't necessarily mean that when you strip it all down, they're actually very simple biological little beings. They're just a little more complex than what the hobby is currently giving them credit for. You know what yeah. I mean? But realistically, they're still very, they're, they want to survive. They're very good at surviving. Right. Yes, so, absolutely. Yeah. And yeah. Is, is there any myths or misnomers t- that go along with feeding tarantulas? I mean, again, we're kind of speaking real generally about tarantulas in general, but is, is there things that you see that, that you guys do differently that, you know, you, you would hope for change in the future? People kind of look at me a little funny when I say don't follow a schedule. Um, I, we usually say, you know, check, check on your animals. Like don't, that. I got to be careful because when I say don't follow a schedule, like some people interpret that as like being lazy or being complacent, you know what I mean? Not visually observing your animals, right? But we don't follow a feeding schedule by any stretch. We just kind of observe behavior and we kind of look at abdomens. Um, as far as the overfeeding goes, um, I've never really experienced that. Like I've, I've had babies. So here's what I've done. I have noticed this. So I've kept babies in with mom uh for quite a long time like up to a year depending on the species with my postal theria, i'll do that for a year and moms on a side note they uh, exhibit like maternal behaviors for as long as the animals are the babies are with them which is very interesting but i i those babies that are in there with mom i will throw them like more food than i know they can eat because i don't want them eating each other Right. So like there's no cap on how much I've given them. Now you can call that irresponsible. You can call that what you like. Uh, in some ways I would agree with that, but it's more or less my own experimentation with like, what, what am I seeing and what are they doing? The babies with mom every time without fail outgrow their like remove those, the, the counterparts that I've removed that are by themselves, uh, like three to four times faster. I and mean, that's not an exaggeration. They're always bigger. So I know they're eating a lot more, more than I would ever feed them if they were by themselves. Um, and, you know, there's no problem molting. Again, they have access to like 100, 100 degrees with that species I give them access to. Um, so they've got all of these things, all of these resources right there and they're using it, right? So I think overfeeding and all that kind of, there's factors involved. It comes down to what, what do they have access to and how much space are you giving them? How much water do they have access to? So it's, it's complicated and I don't feel, I don't know enough, you know, I guess that's a really compl- uh, correctly respond to that. Yeah. I don't, I, I don't know. I just know what I see. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Okay. That's yeah, cool. So definitely not, not following a schedule for sure. I, Cause if you get mechanical about it, you know, then you could have overweight, you know, and a tarantula with a large abdomen could, could present problems, right. Depending on the environment and keepers environment. Sure. Um, I tend not to really overthink that, to be honest with you. But yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. 
So, so let's talk a little bit about how, how you're executing the care. Cause I'm sure people are wondering, okay, they're hearing heat bulbs, they're hearing hundred degrees, they're hearing misting, they're hearing yeah. different things. Can, is it possible if I just say, can you run us through a, a tarantula setup? Like I'm sure they all vary. You said you keep 80 different species, but is there kind of a yeah. base model that you use or a base setup that you use? And then you tinker based on the species. Yeah. Um, I want to talk about if it's okay with you, the carabina versicolor. Because sure, that's a please. popular animal that is actual kind of controversial. Uh, and to me, they're 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 not at all. They're very straightforward. So I want to talk about that. So depend, no matter what the species, we start them in a 40 gram bio with uh, we use a, a little bioactive soil, um, which you don't have to do. It can be coconut fiber, but we do that, and then we do some leaf litter. The animals like to use leaves, uh, whether they're terrestrial or arboreal, fossorial, doesn't matter. They use leaves in the ways they know how. So we give them usually oak leaves um to play with and that's that that animal will be in a 40 gram vial until it gets i don't know half an inch maybe um and as far as heat goes now if they're not in an enclosure what we like to do is we suspend led lights so led grow lights grow lights um are great because they have a little more wattage to them than standard leds they do put off a little bit of heat and we suspend that based on the ambient temperature in the room above a tray full of 40 dram vials, which is easier for us to keep them in trays. And we temp it out. And what we try to do for babies, because they like to stay relatively consistent, um, depending on the species, anywhere from 70 degrees to 85 degrees, right? Avicularia, purpurea, uh, carabina versicolor, those animals like it warmer. So that's what we're trying to do at the top of their vial. And it's really not hard. Uh, we just have it a little temp gun and we just see, okay, how far do I have to move this light from these vials to get that temperature? And then if they want, they can go down and we try to get like a five to 10 degree variant in that vial, which can be challenging, but we've got a whole room to dial this in. So it's, we've got to figure it out, but that's that. And then obviously once they get bigger, it's the same kind of setup, except we put them in like a four by four by seven little plastic, um, not a shoe box, but container right? That opens off the top. Uh, ventilation always, more ventilation than absolutely necessary, right? Uh, and how you quantify that is kind of subjective, but um, we like a large soffit on the top. And then if I can put large soffits on the side, that's what we do. Um, let me touch on cross ventilation real quick, because sure. a lot of that's another myth or a misnomer. People don't understand what cross ventilation is. Cross ventilation is not air that goes from this way to this way. That's not what that is, right? Air comes in, cool air comes in, and then warm air is pushed out the top. Now that is cross ventilation. And that, the hobby has figured out, is what the animals seem to like, right? They, at least arboreal species, they seem to do really well that way. So that's what we try to do in all of our vials, no matter the size. That's another reason why we use exoterra enclosures, because they have that vent in the, in the front. So cool air comes in and goes out the top. That's cross ventilation. So after the after the pioneer setup or the the little we call it pioneer. That's the, who makes the containers. Um, then we'll start looking at the front opening glass enclosures, right? And from there things get a little different. <clears throat> we'll usually still continue to use the LED, only we'll rest it now directly on top of the enclosure. Now what that's doing at our ambient temperatures is giving them that about five degree gradient. In that enclosure, we're usually, let's, again, we're talking about Versicolor, we use a cork hollow that goes all the way to the top, or at least pretty close to it, and then one or two species of plants. That's not necessary. We do it because we, A, like the aesthetic, and B, because the animals seem to really enjoy drinking those droplets off the foliage, mm -hmm. and you can achieve that with fake plants. 
I don't think the animals care, right? So that's up to you. And then the leaf litter that I talked about earlier. Um, and then from there, like I said, we do the LED. And then once they reach maturity, we'll move them into usually a 12 by 12 by 18. Now, I know a lot of people will say that's way too big. Uh, there's no such thing as too big. And the reason I do that is because I want to achieve a 10 to 15 to 20, if I can, degree gradient inside that enclosure, right? And I can't do that in something smaller. So that's why I usually, I'm going to recommend what I do. And that's why I recommend larger enclosures. And like I talked about those behaviors earlier, my animals use all of that space, all of it, right? So it's like, if they're doing that, like, then uh, they probably use bigger if I gave them bigger, right? But I can achieve the gradients and everything that I want in a 12 by 12 by 18 inch enclosure. So that's usually what I recommend for through adulthood, right? Uh, and it's relatively simple, like I said, a cork hollow, a couple live plants, that's it. Very simple. Mm. And then yep. substrate, you the said just thing. a mix of, for substrate, yeah, just a mix of things? Yeah, a mix of things. I usually make my own. Uh, we did offer our own soils for a little while, but, um, that I, I got through busy, so I had to stop that. But uh, yeah, you can make your own. I usually encourage folks to DIY and make your own, um, but you can buy like Jungle Mix and uh, Villa makes a product. What's that called, Jess? Rep the soil, maybe? Yeah. I don't know. Yeah, but yeah. I like to use soils that are various particulates. They seem to drain better. They offer more nutrients. I mean, the animals, if there's more uh, variety of particulate, they can excavate, get the, get the particulate in their fangs, move stuff around easier. That's what I like to do. Uh, chunky soil. That makes yeah, it yeah. And, yeah. And then uh, you, you did say you offer everybody a water dish. What do you use for that? Just something small? A little, uh, we use little deli cups, maybe okay. like five ounce deli cups, something small. And, and really that's just there if they need it, right? It's like a, we're gone for a weekend. We're not there to miss all the time. They can seek that water dish out if they want it. Most of our animals, regardless of the species, prefer to drink the droplets. Okay. That's like all the terrestrial anesthetists and the pamphlobedius and the papiloclastus, like all those animals prefer to come out and drink off of leaf litter or foliage, which is consistent again with natural history, right? what they're doing in the wild. Yeah. Even if they're in a climate that doesn't rain, there's probably going to be some sort of dew in the morning on the ground. Do, exactly. do you hand yeah. mist or are you, do you have a mister rigged up? I would prefer to automate that whole process at this point, but no, we are still hand misting, which has its benefits. I'm getting my eyes on every single individual enclosure. Um, and I'm getting, cause sometimes like we'll over mist or Jessica's mom will come over and over mist and saturate the soil. And you know, then we got now, if it was on an automatic misting system or something like that, it could, we could overdo it, which I, we try to avoid. So for now, hand misting is how we're doing it. Yep. Just, and not a lot, just enough to get every droplets on everything. That's about it. And then, yep. you know, we were talking about Caribbean versicolor. So you're in sort of a, a arboreal oriented enclosure. Do you, would you keep that same enclosure size for something that's terrestrial, like a brachypalma, or do you do a different exoterra size for something like that? Good question. Um, so historically, we've always done front opening exoterra, um, but I've actually started to use aquariums. I've started using aquariums for everything, like 10 gallons. Um, historically, I've always kind of said, like, don't use top opening anything because if you think about what's actually happening when you access that enclosure you're, you're ripping the roof off which mm -hmm. that's where you start seeing all of these defensive behaviors from like obts and uh all these old world animals that react defensively like we don't see any of those behaviors in any of our animals period like because they all 
they're safe. They can retreat and we're not ripping the roof off and we, we're just another spider, right? There's nothing defensive or nasty about them. And that's why they feel safe, right? But what I've been doing lately with all of our terrestrial species is moving to like 10 to 20 gallon enclosures, giving, giving them that soil level. That's, you know, I would say probably 12 inches, 12 to 20, 24 if I could, but 12 to 18 on average. Um, and then giving them lots of rock, like slate rock, at least for the species that I work with, um, which you have to be careful with. You don't want an accident, right? So you have to kind of pay attention to what you're doing. But I like the rock because I've noticed with a lot of our terrestrial species, they don't bask like the arboreal species do. They're kind of just more ambient, which kind of speaks to where they're from, lowland forest, uh, close to the equator, like the, the temperatures are pretty consistent. And so we've tried to, again, give them their resources so they don't have to travel for it. So slate rock gets warm. So it absorbs all the heat from those LEDs or whatever basking I'm using. And I just kind of make their, start their burrows with that and then let them go the rest of the way. Um, and that seems to be working really well. So I like aquariums for that purpose. Yeah. Now, what about screen tops? And that's another thing you hear. Don't use screen or make sure if you're using screen to replace it with Plexi or anything. Are you doing anything with the screen tops on the Exoterra? Great question. So with my arboreal species, no. Um, I tell other people to because I know that that's a valid concern and I don't want to sound like I don't care about that. I'm very transparent and say we do not do that because I prefer what the screen provides and we just do not have, we've never had a problem with that. Like our animals don't hang on the ceiling like that. Uh, and I think that's largely because they have everything they need <clears throat> coming from the top down. They don't have to chase anything right all the resources are there um but on my terrestrial enclosures i am doing that we're replacing it with like a thin perforated pvc um and i usually recommend either that or plexiglass or something like that now with that it's its own set of challenges right that's going to filter light out so i can't grow plants as well i also can't give them um like heat like basking bulbs like little basking spots with that right so that's mm -hmm. a, a challenge i'm still working out with fossorial species, we don't seem to have a problem. So I will use a standard aquarium lid like um, the Diva Matha. I don't know whether common. I'm so bad with common names. Psychedelic or I think yeah. yeah, those uh, we keep on screen, right? And we give them the basking and then we just don't have problems. But I recommend to everyone who wants to use aquariums or any exoterra to replace the mesh for sure. Okay. Because no, it is valid that, that accidents can happen. Uh, and I've seen it, right? I just don't experience it with my animals here. So that's what I recommend. <laughs> And then the animals that you do actually provide some like, heat source as far as like, you know, with the Caribbean versus color, it sounded like you were just using the LEDs, but with the P. metallica or some of the old world species, I'm sure you actually have a specific bulb, like a heat bulb. Can you tell us what that bulb is, like what type of bulb you're using and how you're setting it up? Yes. So with all of them, and I do it for my AVIX too, um, especially when they're brooding, females like to have that extra bit of heat. I use uh, usually halogens is what I recommend, little halogen bulbs, 25 to 50 watts on a dimmer switch. I don't just plug it in and let it go. Um, actually, I set all of this up before I even introduce an animal so that I'm familiar with what temperature they're going to be exposed to. And I try to dial it in. And then after that, it doesn't just stop. I, I continue to monitor behavior and see where they're responding, where they prefer to spend their time and maybe why they're doing that. But I really like those little halogens. Uh, they're just a thin little... Like they got a weird clip in kind of feature to them. They don't screw in. 
Uh, and I put those on dimmer switches. You can buy all of this on Amazon. In fact, there are now Chinese products that are well-made. They've got all the products where it counts, all of the, all the materials where it counts, that have all of these things in one unit. You don't have to buy separate things. So they're making little dimmable uh, clamp lamp, which is great because remember how we talked about suspending mm-hmm. bulbs? Um, I'll rest the LEDs because they don't get hot like that. But if I use a basking bulb, I will elevate it and suspend it off the top of the enclosure. These bulbs that they're making nowadays, these fixtures do all of that in one thing. And they're like $20, $20 US dollars, maybe even less. Um, and they're great. I've been using a bunch. I got a bunch of them behind me right here. So um, that's how I would do that. I use little halogen bulbs and then I dial it in. And that way I know exactly what everyone is being exposed to. Mm. And then those ones that you're buying, that's like an all-in-one type thing. When the bulb burns out, you can just go to the hardware store, I'm sure, and buy a replacement bulb. Is it like a normal fitting for those ones? Yeah, no, they're weird. Um, I'm gonna have Jess find one for me. Or you can yeah, keep yeah, talking. Yeah. Can you yeah, find yeah, she can bring one bulb? over. Yeah, yeah, they're called mini halogens, um, and they just got a weird like clip to them. Um, I don't know, they're weird, but they're small, and that's what I like. So, like, I'm using halogens because what a halogen is effectively doing is it's emitting a very fine ball like it kind of think about a flashlight the further you get from whatever you're pointing a flashlight at it gets broad mm-hmm. well halogens are very fixed and very narrow so i'm able to use them in small enclosures and still get that same heat gradient that they would be getting in the wild right but it's on a small scale um that's why i like the halogen bulbs they're kind of a fixed little beam yeah, yeah. Um, and i think it's just safe it's safer that way instead of heating the whole enclosure to 100 degrees they get one spot that they can find that's 100 degrees and then can sense. you talk about a little bit some of the basking behavior that you see? Because I think that is a weird term to even for people to hear is basking tarantulas. Like you said, quite often people will think that you're yeah. going to burn your animal or the animal doesn't yeah. know what it's doing. Yes. So again, backing up to like when we first started talking, by definition, a tarantula is a polycolotherm, meaning that is by nature what it does. Tarantulas are very, very capable of finding thermal gradients and using them. We see it online You can go on any Facebook page, any Facebook group right now if you wanted to, and you'll find one that's kind of like drawing its way towards something that's on an electronic device or something in the room that's emitting heat and it will try to find it, right? So they're very good at doing that. That is what they do, right? So basking, I mean, it's going to vary from species to species, but the postletheria and the vicularia, which are primarily what I work with, I really like them. They bask just like lizards do. They, they'll, they'll sit right underneath the bulb or they'll get their abdomen close to where that, that heat is uh, coming from. And they just sit. They, I call it their morning cup of coffee. They do it in the morning because the lights turn on. They come up and get warm because it gets a little cooler at night. It's standard thermal regulatory behavior. They'll bask for maybe 15 to 30 minutes, maybe even five minutes, and then take off for the day. And that's, that's, a, that's a tarantula for you. Right. Yeah. Sometimes now it changes behaviorally if they're in pre-molt, if they're going to molt, you'll see them frequently basking just like a lizard would more frequently. And also if uh, a booting female, a female that's got an egg sac, and that makes more sense, right? Again, we talked about these metabolic processes that require energy. All of that requires more energy. So they're going to spend more time heating themselves. And again, this comes down to ambient temperatures, right? If my ambient temperatures were sky high, they probably wouldn't be spending so much time. They'd probably be trying to cool themselves. So they'd be trying to get away from it, right? So that's why there's a balance here of like ambient versus basking temps, which the reptile community seems to have this all figured out, right? This, this, this kind of makes sense. 
Mm. But the the tarantula community is kind of hitting a wall with this. It's like, it's not, they're not understanding, right? But when you think of an iguana or any kind of monitor lizard or something like that, like, of course, they, they bask and then they retreat to the cool side. Well, tarantulas are no different because they're polycotherms. That's what they do, right? They, so getting off a little tangent there, but, um, no, no, that's good. Did I mean, I your question? yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. I mean, the, the, I think one of the things that happens in the tarantula side is quite often they're kept in very, very small enclosures, even as adults, so that the concept of even yeah. offering a thermal gradient is basically impossible because there's just not enough space. Yeah. So you could see an animal get burned to death or, or you know, dehydrated to death because they're if they were offering some kind of heat source. But that doesn't speak to not yeah. offering a heat source. It goes back to, you know, not eliminating something just because we're not doing it the right way. That is, I'm so glad you said that. You said it perfectly. Yes. It doesn't mean don't do it. It just means go about it in a different way. And for a lot of people, that's uncomfortable. They don't want to hear that. They don't want to hear that there might be a better way to do something with something they're comfortable with being so simple. Right. But that's why I use big enclosures because I can't do that in those big enclosures. Now, I will speak to the other side and say that there are breeders um, that will breed spiders in a 32 ounce deli cup. Like they do it successfully. They just heat the room, the ambient temperature of the room that's relatively warm and they're successful doing so. Right. So I'm not ignoring that. Right. So I want to be very clear. Like that's why I'm not saying my way is the best way or the only way to do this. It's just in the wild, they have choices and it's, it's, I think it's important to give them those choices in a larger enclosure. And it's more rewarding and exciting for me as a keeper than stacking them floor to ceiling in 32 ounce deli cups and, not not acknowledging that that biology right yeah so there's just this something to think about because i get that all the time like, well i don't have to a lot of keepers say you're, you're making this too complicated it's like well not necessarily but i do understand where you're coming from right i know i can do it too i can breed a post area in a in a jar right but i why would i do that when i know when i know when they have this access to these stimuli they, they use them, right so yeah yeah well and i think one thing that i talk about a lot on the podcast is actually how important it can be to add some level of complication and some level of expense to the hobby, whether it's reptile keeping or tarantula keeping, to protect keepers from from getting collections that are way too big for them. You know, you, even with tarantulas, you talk about yeah. animals that might live 15, 20 years. If you have 200 yeah. spiders or 50 spiders in your basement, it's it's kind of a lot. So if, if you if you say instead of having just the the thirty two ounce deli cup, you actually need you know a twelve by twelve by eighteen with some lighting and, and misting, and you know it, it can kind of temper the response to want to just have the the whole you know giant species list of different of different spiders available. You're right. You're right. Yep. And I know there's a lot of that. That's a large portion of this hobby is just having a list of offerings that's like literally the size of you know your arm. Um. And I, and that's okay. I know there's a place for that. And I know those those vendors are successful and that's that's okay. I think what bothers me most and what I get the most vocal about are those who, especially for new keepers, who say, do do not do that. For one, you're using outdated and wrong information to convey that and uh, saying to not do something like in some situations for some keepers in some environments, like thinking the way I'm thinking and providing these things and thinking about all these parameters could save that spider's life. Like, you know what I mean? Because if, if you didn't know any better, if you didn't have your animals in a warm room and you're in Canada, it's like, well, room temperature, they're, they're fine. And you take a versicolor home, well, it's not going to live very long, right? And now they're confused, right? So I think the biggest thing that I try to, at the end of the day, uh, advocate for is like, get away from, from the one way is the only way thing. 
please use facts when you're talking about the biology of the spider, right? Please understand that they do thermoregulate. They, that's what they do. They do need access to those gradients and temperatures, you know, and, and, and then go about providing those however you see fit. How you do it's going to be very different than how I do it. Um, I just think we need to um, give the spiders a little more credit, right? And kind of look yeah. into the species that you are choosing to work with and where they come from and what that looks like, for sure. Mm. Yeah, that's very well said. Now, wh- what about feeding? We talked. To, you talked about you know, not using a schedule and you know maybe you know having some protective me- mechanisms for not overfeeding. What prey items are you using, and do you mix it up, or do you kind of stick with the staple? Yeah. Um, so primarily, we feed dubia. We found a lot of success feeding dubia roaches, and then what we feed our dubia, we're very cautious about. Um, we try to mix up their diet quite a bit. Uh, with a lot of um, you know squashes and carrots and the collard greens and dandelion greens and uh, we make our own dry goods our dry diet mm. you know, so we don't feed heavy proteins when we're feeding them um, what that might do to a tarantula I I don't know if we're feeding them a heavy protein diet um, um, my guess is probably not much but I don't know I just try to keep it low protein uh, and uh, mix up the diet for the crickets and the roaches but occasionally when we get them we'll do blue bottle fly which is very exciting. I love feeding them flies. It's very cool to watch. Uh, not just jumping spiders get to have all the fun. Your tarantula will chase a fly if it's the right size. So, which is really fun. Um, and I think that's about it. We don't really, we kind of stay away from larvae. We don't really do um, mealworm or superworm or anything like that. Um, and another thing too, we like to tong feed because that way we know that we saw the animal eat. Now, if we're just doing a novelty item like a fly, that's, they get it when they get to it or they don't. Right. But mm-hmm. for the most part, we're just tongue feeding dubia and crickets for the most part. Okay, cool. Yeah. Well, tell us a little bit more about, uh, we'll kind of start start to wrap up here with, about Marshall arachnids. You know, you'd already mentioned that, you know, you have a facility, but maybe just list off some of the species that you're working with. And you've already listed a few, but you don't, you don't have to go through all 80. And then, you know, where yeah, people yeah. can find you guys. I know you're doing some shows and whatnot and, and, uh, and go from there. Yeah. Uh, yeah. If you don't mind, I'll uh, kind of elaborate on the future of Marshall please, arachnids. Um, I kind of went public with this one time already, but uh, Marshall arachnids is going to undergo a name change. Um, we're going to kind of diversify here a little bit. All of our dry goods and our um, enclosures that we offer um, are going to kind of take a back seat simply because we're kind of running out of time. I want to spend more time, as much time as I can in the animal room and working with the spiders. And then we've also got a number of different amphibians and reptiles that we're bringing on board. Uh, behind me, I've got a whole bunch of hognose snakes and brumation right now. Um, so we want to diversify what we're working with. Um, and Marshall arachnids is eventually going to dissolve in a way. Uh, it'll undergo a name change. Um, and then within the last few months, Jess and I have jumped on board with facilitating what is called Run It Reptile Expo, which is kind of a virtual event that uh, Tristan of Gecko Junkie, uh, he is actually in Knoxville. Uh, close to us started during the pandemic um, and we kind of, we've been helping him kind of give this a name and uh, kind of give this a sort of just uh, some organization and some structure um, and it is taking off and I don't know where it's going to go. I know where we want it to go. Um, there's been a lot of participation in that, but that takes a lot of time um, to facilitate that event and get people what they're paying for and making sure everything is top notch and quality. So I don't know what martial arachnids is going to look like, to be honest with you, uh, in the next few months. So we'll we'll see. I don't know. I know we just built this huge facility, but when opportunities prevent, uh, pre- uh, present themselves, we jump on them. So I'm not sure. I'm not sure where it's going to go. 
Um, but for now, martialarachnids.com. Uh, we're on all the social media at Martial Arachnids. Um, and we're going to keep trying to do what we do. I love conversations like this. This is more my style, Dylan, so thank you. I, I, we, we are hounded every day to get more content up and show people what we're doing. It's just, A, I'm, I don't like it. I'm not good at it, like I said. Um, and that takes time, as you well know, editing videos and making everything look pretty. That is a talent I don't have. And Jessica is way too busy, so it's kind of hard to make that look nice. Um, <clears throat> But as of right now, too, when we first started martial arachnids, I bought a lot of spiders, a lot of spiders. And I didn't I wasn't going to resell them. I've just held on to them. And now, as of this year, a lot of them are reaching maturity. So I've got a lot of species that we've never offered before that uh, hopefully we have some luck with. Um, a lot of Vanestis, Pamphobedius, Theraphosa, other species of Avicularia, uh, a lot of true spiders, a lot of widow. We, Read a lot of widows. People love black widows for some reason. Um, I think they're pretty cool too. Uh, but a lot of true spiders, a lot of huntsmen's. Um, so there's just a lot of variety coming down the pipe. And as you can imagine, that's going to take a lot of time and we want to do it right. So um, martial arachnids, as you see it, is just going to be very different in the next few months. So that's oh, that's kind of on. exciting too. It's very exciting. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I'd love to keep you updated on it too, man. Um, maybe we can come back on a little bit later and we can talk some more. That'd be great. Yeah, yeah, but, uh, please, we'll, we'll definitely we'll do that. And, and uh, for, for now, if people, they'll see the name change, they'll see the updates. If they just go follow Marshall Arachnids, I'm sure you'll have the announcements on there for people to, to keep yeah. track of you. Yeah, yep, we sure will. Jess will. I won't. I don't have time. But Jess will, Jess will make <laughs> sure you guys are well aware and, uh, and uh, we'll see what happens. But I'm really excited. And it's been a lot of fun. I've really enjoyed traveling the country and doing these shows. Um, it's kind of showed me a side that I didn't know was out there. There's a lot of people like me who are not very vocal online. Um, and I've, I've loved talking to them and, uh, it's, I've calmed down a little bit when I first started doing this and I was selling animals to people. Um, I was very vocal. I was very, uh, rough around the edges about it. I wasn't shy. I wasn't scared. I didn't hold back. Um, but now, you know, I, I've taken it back a little bit and conversations like this have been very helpful. Um, so Dylan, I really appreciate you having me on and taking the time. Um, but so thank you guys. That is what I'm trying to say. Thank you. Thank you for all the support you've given Jess and I. It's been fun. Yeah, yeah, I'm not surprised you guys are getting a lot of support. And and for those that, if you if they do go to your YouTube channel, there are actually a couple of really great videos on there. Even though I'm sh like I'm not surprised people are asking you to do more because the videos up there are very good. But there is a couple yeah. that are that are fantastic. So if people want to really dig into you know the conversation with Becky or lighting and heating. It's all up there. Yeah, what that will do is that will spark all the questions. I think because we don't really hammer in how exactly like the application yet, but it will at least start the conversation, which is what it's been doing. And it's been great to follow up with you guys in person about it and messages and blah, blah, blah. So uh, check it out. Awesome. Check it out if you have a minute. Yeah. Well, Ryan, I really appreciate this conversation and we'll definitely have to do another one in the future. I can't wait to kind of see where things evolve. But until then, thank you very much for coming on the show. Thanks to Jess, who's uh, answering questions in the background. I know is, you know, th yes. the other half of the duo here. So thank you very much yep. for being on the Cheers. podcast. Thank you, Dylan. It's been a pleasure, dude. Thank you. Appreciate it. We'll talk soon. All right. That is the end of that episode. Ryan, thank you so much for being on the podcast. And thank you very much to Jess as well, who is uh, working in the background and answering some questions. And I do really appreciate what you guys are up to. And I think it's a, it's a really fascinating model to see the tarantula world start to kind of take on some of the stuff that's been happening in the reptile world for the past decade or so. I think that's fascinating. Like I said, it really motivates me to improve my care with my tarantulas. And I'm excited to do that myself. And 
I will be very curious to see how martial arachnids evolves and how it changes and you know name change and how things happen in the future for the two of you. So we'll definitely have to have you back on at some point in the next year or so once uh, that update has taken place. Listeners, if you enjoyed the podcast, thank you for listening, first of all. But if you did enjoy it, make sure you share it on social media or Facebook, Instagram. Any of those really do help. You can comment on either Spotify or YouTube as well if you want to let us know your thoughts or if you do have any questions about the episode. If you would like more information on the podcast or any episode on the network, make sure you head to animalsathomenetwork.com. You can also support the sponsor, Custom Reptile Habitats. At the affiliate link is in the YouTube description or the show notes. If you do make a purchase, a commission comes back to me at no extra cost to you. And of course, you can also join us on Patreon at patreon.com slash animals at home. Again, like I said to the intro, I had a bunch of new people sign up for Patreon. I am very grateful for everybody that does that because it does really help me continue to produce this show at the you know the level and the frequency that I do now. So that, that does go a long way to help me out. And I think that is it for this one, everybody. I will catch you next episode.